Um, uh, hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is Ryan McGuigan, and welcome back to the Renewed Life uh, podcast. Uh, joining me today is Casey McGuire Davidson. Uh, Casey is an ex-red wine girl, so she has a lot in common with me, turned uh, life and sobriety coach, and she's the host of the Hello Someday podcast. If it looks like I'm fighting off two puppy dogs, I am. An inspirational podcast with almost 200 episodes where she shares tips and tools on how to live a life you love. To date, she has had over a million downloads of her podcast. That is pretty amazing. Uh, today, she shares her story, her struggles, and how she found success and happiness and uses her message to be a voice of hope for those suffering or using alcohol as a crutch. Through her transformative courses and coaching programs, she empowers women all over to love the life they live and live it free from the grips of alcohol. And welcome, Casey. Oh, and, thank you. And we have, um, uh, so just uh, some inside baseball. Uh, we had a little conversation before we started and Casey and I have a lot in common. Uh, we both went to boarding school uh, in the New England area and know some of the uh, same people and uh, so we have we have certainly a, a, a connection um, already. However, we have another connection, and that's what I wanted to get into. Red wine girl, uh, what does that mean? Well, I was um, always a drinker. At, you know, after I graduated college, um, or sorry, when I went to college, I didn't drink in high school because I was terrified of getting kicked out. Uh -huh. um, but. Once I went to college, I started drinking and absolutely loved it. I was on the women's rugby team, which is like a crash course in problematic drinking behavior. Um, Where did you go to college? I went to Bates College in Maine. Yep. No, well. Yeah. The women's rugby team, I mean, we were we were the typical like keg runs, keg stands. The goal was to black out. And, and I thought it was incredibly fun. Um, and then, you know, my drinking kind of transitioned based on my life stages. But um, once I moved out to Seattle, I lived with my boyfriend, now fiance. There were lots of, um, you know, young couples with lots of wine and started drinking that. And I just was always kind of an every night drinker growing up. My parents always had a bottle of wine on the table. I thought that's just what adults did and you know pretty soon a glass turned into a bottle um yeah. it wasn't that unusual i actually didn't have a huge bottom it was more of a death of a thousand cuts i almost always drank a bottle of wine a night sometimes more at the end um was waking up at 3 a.m with brutal anxiety was vaguely hungover every single day um, going to work. Uh, and just, I knew it was a problem. I knew it was incredibly important to me. You know, when my husband would take a glass of wine for dinner, it would make me mad because I'd be like, all right, now I need to open another bottle of wine and it's going to be awkward because I'm not going to have enough. And um, probably worried about my drinking for about a decade before I stopped, I ended up stopping drinking with the help of a sober coach when I was 40 years old. And that was seven and a half years ago. Wow. Um, and I say, wow, uh, because that's pretty much my story. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I um, went to boarding school. Uh, I never did drugs. I, I would drink. Um, the first time I ever drank was when I was, I think, 14. And it was my dad, and he gave me a beer, and we were watching the Celtics versus the Lakers. Mm -hmm. And he was giving me there was there had been a television, uh, you know, there was sort of a cut in between um, the commercials, and it was from Nancy Reagan, and she was telling us, you know, don't don't do drugs, just don't do it, or something like that. And um, my dad looked at me, and he, my father was a prosecutor. And he was the chief prosecutor in our state, in the state of Connecticut. And um, he had told me, and this is a quote, if you do drugs, I will kill you. Um, and so that was sort of uh, that was my motivation not to do drugs is, is preserving my my life. 
But in the same exact conversation, my father gave me a beer at 14 years old and normalized that this isn't a drug. And that's what I thought all my life is that alcohol was not a drug. And alcohol was something that we Irish people did to sort of get by the, you know, get over a, a hard day or to celebrate a great win. Um, every social occasion for Irish people seems to revolve around alcohol. And, Do you know I'm um, Irish too? Casey McGuire. Uh, yeah, McGuire. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> um, so, and, and, that, and that gets to my point. So I, um, similar to you, I was terrified of getting thrown out of school. Uh, my parents uh, grew up very poor. And I'm not just saying that. Uh, they grew up dirt poor. And uh, they instilled in us a, um, a sense of gratitude for the fact that we were not poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you were not to, to look a gift horse in the mouth. And so that I had this chance to go to boarding school from um, my dad left government when I was 14. And all of a sudden he went from making $50,000 a year to $200,000 a year. And back in 1987, that was a lot of money. And so I was a, I was able to, I read a book called uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And I wanted to go to boarding school and my dad sent me. And so the one thing I was never going to do is get kicked out kind of like you. I I said, this is, uh, I, I'm going to honor my parents' commitment to me. And so I didn't really drink um, except for the weekends, you know, when you would be at home. Uh, but uh, until I got to college, and when, even when I got to college, I was at Boston College and at BC in, in those years, probably, well, if you're up way up in Maine, it probably wasn't that big of a deal. But in Boston, mm-hmm. um, there was such a crackdown on underage drinking. Mm-hmm. that it worked and you couldn't get into a bar. So the only time that you could drink, you ready for this? You're going to love this is if you join the rugby team. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was on the rugby team team as well. Oh, you're kidding, not, because, man. not because I particularly like rugby. I just like drinking beer with rugby players. <laughs> so you know, all the incredibly inappropriate songs that I cringe oh, at every single day of my life at, when I think of but it. But you probably drank beer out of a boot. You mm-hmm. probably, yes, yes. Yep. You did all those filthy, horrible, yeah. Oh, so, disgusting. Um, so for two years, um, the only place that I really drank was on the weekends at, at, at rugby games. So even in college, I was all that bad. Until until BC had a um an ex- a direct exchange program with um Ireland, and so you could be a BC student at a Jesuit school in Ireland. Uh, they were like brother and sister schools, and when I went to Ireland for the year, that's when everything changed, and I joined the rugby team. And I found out quickly that I really stunk at rugby because these guys have been playing rugby all their lives, and I've only been playing it to drink beer for two years. So when I finally got to Ireland, I tried to join the rugby team and they informed me, no, we don't need you. You stink. So then I just went and just joined the pub team and I became a singer in a pub. And that's when I found uh, a lot of um, comrades in in the pub. And it was the first time in my life I started day drinking. Um, And so that is uh, my sort of progression of day drinking. And then um, I met uh, my, my first wife in new york when i was an actor and uh she introduced me to wine she was a argentine and argentinian people drink wine every day they're much like italians and and they don't think that it's a problem to drink wine every day and if you have a problem with it then something's wrong with you um and so drinking wine every day became a a part of our marriage and for her that was okay because she could have that one glass and that wouldn't turn into a bottle. But for us Irish people, um, it doesn't work quite like that. And so my one glass would turn into two glasses and then two glasses would turn into, well, there isn't really three. So it's about two and three quarters and then that's the end of the bottle. And then you're like, well, um, I I guess I need more. But I used it a lot um, for sleep because I was a terrible insomniac. I don't know about you. Uh, and so for, for the longest time, I used drinking wine as an excuse for being able to sleep at night or else I would be a total insomniac and worried about work and whatnot. So that's the story of us both becoming alcoholics. Um, so l- I'd like to really get into how you 
Um, first, uh, I know that you got a, a sober coach, but what, what was the, was there any in, in instance, was there any, um, I know that you said that you never really had a real bottom, just a sort of a, a succession of small little tiny cuts, but was there any moment where there was a moment of clarity when you said, you know, I do have a problem and I need, I, I, I need to get some help. Um, yes, of course, for sure. And there were probably many moments that should have been that moment of clarity, but mm. weren't. Um, and it was a buildup. So like many people, the uh, time that I stopped drinking and just have not have not started again and have zero intention of ever drinking again um, was not my first attempt to stop drinking about 10 and a half years ago. Um, my son was five and I was really feeling just like I could not cope with my life. I was working in tech. I had a little kid. My husband and I had just moved to a new neighborhood. I felt really isolated and stressed out. Um, and I was hungover every day. So I would walk into work um, debating like, do I just abuse alcohol or am I actually an alcoholic? Because if I just abused alcohol, that meant that I could, in my mind, somehow get it under control. I just yeah, needed to yeah. stop abusing it. And I specifically chose a therapist um, who specialized in addiction and anxiety. And I went into him and said, you know, my job, my boss, my husband, my kid, my, I don't sleep. I have crazy anxiety. And by the way, I drink a bottle of wine a night. And he immediately said, let's talk about your drinking. And I was yeah. like, no, no, let's talk about my boss. Um, yeah. But he was sober. He attended a 12-step program. He very much encouraged me to attend a 12-step program Right around then, I, through various books and articles, I found an online secret Facebook group. For It was called the Booze Free Brigade. It was a bunch of people who were walking away from alcohol. And I shared there for the first time in a post. I was absolutely terrified and found just 30 women immediately jumped on and said, I'm just like you. My story is just like you. Um, I hear what you're saying. Uh, there was a woman there around my age in Seattle who was a lawyer um, who'd been going to AA for four months and was four months alcohol-free. And she offered to take me. And at the time, I, um, it was something I never thought I'd do in my life. You know, I didn't know anyone who was sober. I didn't know anyone who had struggled with alcohol the way the way I was. I had plenty of friends who were big drinkers, but we didn't really talk about it. And um, so I went with her with the attitude of like, well, bucket list. This is something yeah. I never thought I'd do. Um, I ended up attending AA for about four months. Turns out it was not my jam. It just, mm -hmm. the people there were incredibly nice. It didn't resonate with me. I am in no way religious. Um, I know everyone says it's a spiritual program. I'm not very spiritual. Um, sort of rebelled against the structure and the dogma and the meetings and everything else, which of course meant that then I got pregnant with my daughter. I didn't drink for a year. I decided I was fixed. Um, lo and behold, I was happier. My life was better. I was better at my job. My marriage was better. And so I thought, oh, it was situational that I drank that much, right? It wasn't that I have a problem with alcohol. It was that my life was stressful and it's no longer that way. And so I decided to moderate like a lot of people decide to do, right? That's the holy grail that everyone wants. And in no time at all, I was back to drinking every night in no time at all. I was back to a bottle plus of wine a night, worried about it, knowing it was unsustainable. At that point, I was under no illusions that my anxiety, my 3am wake ups, my depression was completely and totally related to my drinking. 
um, the first time I was sort of oblivious. I didn't realize the correlation, but they always say that recovery ruins you for drinking and it's completely true. You know too much. Um, but for the longest time I, you know, tried to stop and I couldn't, it was really hard. Um, I would get four days, drink a bottle of wine, another four days, drink a bottle of wine, which in my mind was way better than nine days, you know, nine bottles a week. And it was, yeah. but I was still, um, totally miserable. I was constantly in withdrawal and hungover. And so I just, what happened the second time is, I mean, I was writing myself notes every morning being like, I can't do this anymore. I went on a nice vacation in Arizona with my family <laughs> and woke up at 2 a.m. and was throwing up in the bathroom next to my husband and my two little kids. They were two and eight, you know, running the sink. So hopefully they didn't hear me. And, you know, on your knees at the age of 38, um, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is not okay. This is not sophisticated. This is not attractive. I'm hurting myself. I was really afraid that I was going to screw up my marriage and my kids and my health, and it was going to be completely my fault. And so I uh, woke up at 3am. I was on the exact same uh, page, the Facebook page, someone else was having a day one. And they recommended a sober coach. I contacted her, you know, from my fancy office that morning. And um, that was my last day one. I emailed her every day for about two years, which is crazy. I needed someone to hold my hand step by step by step. What I liked about her was she was very practical and positive. And, um, you know, we, ne you know, never use the term alcoholic. Um, it was just about drinking doesn't suit you. This is a health and wellness choice. Nobody needs to drink. And by the way, alcohol is completely addictive and it is a drug. Yeah. Yeah. So that was did my you, path. Did you ever, um, did you have any withdrawals when you decided to, to, to cease that for that last day, one of yours? No, other than my usual hangovers, which I was completely used to. Um, I felt once I got out of the hanger hangover phase, I felt incredibly tired. Um, just like I'd been hit by a truck. Um, I didn't tell my husband anything more than I was going to stop drinking for a hundred days. He totally didn't believe me because I'd said that I was going to stop drinking many, many times. Yeah. Uh, he didn't know that I had a coach he, and that was the first time that I really had support and the world had changed in those three years. Um, you know, I, I really listened to podcasts every chance I got. I emailed my coach. I had sort of zoom calls with her. She lived in Paris. And when I was 60 days alcohol free, I joined, um, an online course. It was called hip sobriety school, eight week course with a group and two live calls a week run by Holly Whitaker, who after that wrote the book, quit like a woman, which is a huge, um, hugely popular book, especially among women. Quit like a woman. I have never heard. I just thought no. about that. So I'm like, I'm like, what would be the equivalent of that for, for men quit like a man? Um, I don't uh, I, I know. I... Um, you know, there are a lot of great books like Alcohol Explained by William Porter. Um, I am hugely into what's now called Quitlet. And the reason that I like it is, uh, for better or worse, a lot of programs out there, I know there's sobriety for women, but um, are really geared towards men, um, you know, I complete, I have so many friends who are in 12 step programs. It was created <laughs> 80 years ago by two white men. And it is, yep. um, at least in the big book, very patriarchal. Um, and for women, um, I believe, and many women believe that you need a different approach. Uh, the issue is typically not our ego. The typically, the issue is typically not that we need to be of service. I think, for a lot of women, it's that we don't have strong enough boundaries where we give too much of ourselves away. 
Um, we drink to cope with the way our life has been set up and it's used as a pacifier to, you know, oh my God, <laughs> you're do trying to do all the things and there, there's a lot going on that, that is hard. Um, here, have a glass of wine, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with you that, that within, um, within the AA model, there is certainly a lot of stress that's, that's put on the ego and there's a lot of stress that's put on uh, pride. And, uh, as you know, even in meetings, you hear it all the time where that says there's seven deadly sins and pride leads the parade. And it seems that the reason probably for that is that the founder of it, um, Bill W, uh, most likely had a pride issue and therefore he would create the child of himself in, and, or, or the thing that would, would, would serve the need in, in him. So I do understand that. And, and that for, for me in, in AA uh, has always been a problem because, you know, pride and ego was never an issue for me. Uh, I was raised by a narcissist and um, a, a very bold one. And uh, there was only one ego in my family, and it was not mine. It yeah. was my dad's. And everybody else's ego had to be subservient to his. So my, my problem is not, um, you know, pr pride and having an issue with that the world doesn't know how great I am. Uh, my issue is safety and anxiety. Yes. So in a lot of ways, I have um, my, my wife and I, because my wife doesn't, uh, my wife doesn't drink and she um, stopped drinking seven years ago when we got together. Um, and that's her story, not mine. I won't tell it. Um, but you know, to live with me and for me to be able to live with somebody, I just said, you know, you can drink if you want to. I never had a problem with, I, oh, I was, that was a question. Uh, does your husband still drink? He does. Yeah. So, so my, my wife and I, kind of, when we started dating, she drank and it, and it wasn't until I, my wife is from England and, um, they're very close to Irish people. And my wife's mother's maiden name is Dowd and her maiden name is Morgan. And these are good drinking stock people. And so um, there was a point at which I told my wife, I love you. I really don't like the way that you drink. <laughs> so, like, I, I could live with you for the rest of my life. It's just, we're just going to have to, somebody's going to have to move out. <laughs> it's your drinking. Um, so uh, when, so my wife and I talk uh, a lot and she, um, uh, she always says that, that she drank a lot because, um, of her anxiety and, and, and of her, her fear. And she says, you know, women are very vulnerable in this world and, you know, going out, going out at night, Ryan, when she tells me going out at night is not the same thing for you as it is for her. And when she says, Hey, we need Dimatap for the baby at CVS and it's eight o'clock and it's pitch dark outside. Well, I know what that means. That means you're going to CVS to go get the Dimatap. Yeah. And, 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 and I should, because there is a difference and there is a difference between men and women. And uh, we do react and we do use alcohol uh, and drugs for, for, for very different reasons. So that's very interesting. Uh, my, my wife, uh, does not go to AA. She does, she, she has chosen a different pathway. Uh, but what she always wants to talk about, and I don't know if you can expand on this, um, cause I don't know too much about it. Um, but what she always talks about is she says, you know, people really ought to do something and say something about the mommy wine culture oh, God. in I've America. So many issues, uh, episodes on both the mommy wine culture as well as alcohol and anxiety and alcohol and sleep because alcohol really does shoot your nervous system to hell and, mm. you know, spikes your cortisol and, you know, stops you from sleeping well, even with a single glass of wine. So I'm, I've done a bunch of episodes both on the physiological uh, impacts of alcohol versus what we're taught but the mommy wine culture is very, very real. Um, when I had my son, um, I was uh, given books called uh, Sippy Cups Are Not for Chardonnay and Nap Time is <laughs> literal books written about this. And of course, I loved this. Um, it is, you know, when you have a child and you can disagree with me as much as you want. I would say that your world truly changes for women 
by 80%. And I would say my husband's world changed by about 20%, maybe 30. Um, I, you know, we went from being completely independent. We both worked, you know, dual income, no kids. We didn't ask each other for permission to do pretty much anything. Of course, we were respectful and, hey, I've got this thing this weekend. Hey, I've got this business trip. But it suddenly went to needing to ask permission to go to the gym, you know, to do whatever, because if I was going to go do something independently, by definition, he would need to take care of our son. And it was humbling. And motherhood is so hard. It's hard on your body. It's, it's, um, you know, everybody says it's absolutely wonderful. Um, it's freaking hard. It's not wonderful all the time. It's incredibly emotionally difficult. You are used to being a very successful woman. And suddenly you are giving every moment of your time um, and energy to a tiny creature who constantly screams at you. And, it, you know, what have you done for me lately? And um, women only talk about how hard it is when they're drinking together. Truly, because otherwise you're supposed to be like, oh, my God, this is the best moment of my life. This time so special. Um, and I didn't particularly have difficult children. So mommy wine culture was a way to reclaim, you know, I'm still an adult. I'm still a badass. You can multitask while drinking. I have to say playing Legos for the millionth time was a lot more tolerable with a couple glasses of wine. Um, you know, you see your girlfriends, you have wine, you, um, do all the things, cooking dinner, you drink, once the kids to bed, you drink. Um, it was the one way that you get to relax and have fun. Whereas I used to have a million activities. I was always a big drinker, but I also took guitar lessons and went hiking and went kayaking and, you know, ran 10 Ks, I had a lot of other interests. And suddenly I was working till, you know, 545, rushing out of the office to try to get my son before daycare closed, rushing home, two hours with him getting him to bed, and then jumping back on the computer. And that was on repeat. How many children do you have? I have two. Um, two. so my, they're six years apart. So when I quit drinking, my son was eight. My daughter was two. Uh, the first time I quit drinking, my son was five. I quit for a year and then, then I had my daughter. Um, and I'm very, very, very glad I quit drinking when I did one of the huge motivators mm -hmm. for me, because, you know, I was drinking every night. Um, after my son went to bed, I was, you know, falling asleep. I'm saying in quotes, passing out on the couch. My husband couldn't wake me. Um, you know, Hey, your son's jumping on the uh, couch in the morning. And I'm like, Oh, uh, mommy doesn't feel so good. Can you stop that? And one of my big motivators was thinking 10 years from now, when he's 18, is he going to want to bring his friends home at 9 p.m.? Um, are we going to have a close relationship? And I love that I haven't had a drink in seven and a half years and we are incredibly close and he's very proud of me for not drinking. When I hit a thousand days, he and my husband went to a craft store and filled up a huge glass um, sort of, I'm not thinking of the right word, a huge glass bowl and literally counted out 1000, you know, marbles and put them in there. And it was on the kitchen table. And that was amazing. Oh, that is so sweet. That is incredible. Uh, I have five kids. No. And wow. Yes. Yes. So, um, and I quit when, uh, let me see, our oldest is at NYU. And she is a, a drama student at the Tisch School of Drama. And uh, I think she was four when I quit. And then um, the 19-year-old is at Penn State. And she, I think she was two, almost three. I think she just turned three when we got divorced. And um, 
when I got divorced from my first wife is when I got, I got, I got sober, uh, quickly after that. Um, and my, my, uh, my, uh, I had a bottom unlike you. I didn't have a, a million cuts. I, I had a sort of a self-induced bottom. I was sort of, you know, planing going down like normal alcoholism, but, uh, year, a little while later, my first, um, sponsor, uh, had always said, he said, kid, most people go like this. He said, you went like that. <laughs> and, um, I, I, I took a, a dive off a cliff. Um, Did that so to contribute speak. to your divorce? Uh, my divorce contributed to my diving off the cliff. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so, uh, I did, uh, a lot of things that many alcoholics, uh, do, um, when I was actively drinking, I traveled a lot, uh, that had a lot to do with my, with my, my, um, over dependence on, or abuse of, of, of alcohol. Yeah. And, and I, and I had a lot of, um, I was traveling a lot, uh, worldwide and internationally. And so I was going to China a lot. I was going to Europe particularly a lot. And a lot of that, ha I was screwing up my, my um, sleep schedule. So when I tell you I was an insomniac, I really actually was. Yeah. And the only way that I could just lay down for four or five hours and get some sleep is if I drank three glasses of wine. Um, it, th that never really became an issue until uh, my, my, my first wife um, started having children. Because like I said, uh, she was my wine buddy and my fellow wino. And um, I, I, she never saw, I guess, how much I was drinking until she stopped. And that's when I became like a real alcoholic. Uh, I started, you know, using vodka because I remember, I'll never forget it. It was um, our first child was a about to, so I think she's probably about seven months pregnant. And um, I had come home from, I was in Milan for about a week and I came home and I opened up a really nice bottle of wine that I brought from Milan. And I said, here, you can have a glass of it. And I think she was seven months pregnant. So the doctor told her she could have a little bit. So she had a little bit and that was fine. And she came down the next morning and I came down and she picked up the bottle out of the, the garbage. And she said, you know, I probably had two ounces of this you drank the whole thing. And I went, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, <laughs> you know, you haven't noticed, but that's how I drink. And I've been drinking like that for quite a, quite a long time. But that next, that night, so I went to work that day, I came back. And as I was coming back, I did what I normally did. And I stopped off at the package store and I saw Ray at the package store. He was my buddy. And I bought a bottle of wine. And then I saw over in the corner that they had these little nippy things. And I'm like, well, I guess I might as well just have a couple of those. And I, so I grabbed them and I was so embarrassed buying them because I swear my, my brain, my soul, something knew that this was wrong. Something knew that this was a problem and I needed help and, and I, and I needed to stop, but it, but the alcoholism took over and it said, don't listen to that guy. I know what I'm talking about. I know how to handle this. And that guy told me to buy one little nip. And so that night I went home and I drank, I went, I poured a glass of wine for myself and I had that. And then when she wasn't looking, I drank my little nip and now I had two drinks in me, which still wasn't enough. So then I had yeah. another glass. Well, that quickly turned from one nip to three nips. And then from three nips is very easy to go to a half a pint because you're actually saving money that way. And from the half a pint, you're obviously going to graduate to a pint of this stuff. And so by by the by the by the my bottom I guess blessedly, uh, it wasn't that far down because I was probably consuming a half a bottle of vodka um, just after work. So I would leave work at six o'clock. I would drop and I had an hour and a half commute home at night. Yeah. And I would stop at a package store close to whereby I was and get vodka and a sprite and drive 60 miles. And I can tell you, uh, for a former prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney, doing that kind of stuff is, is about as low as you should go. Yeah. Uh, I thought you were on a that, train. <laughs> yeah, no, I was not on lot. any train. Nope. I was not on any train. 
And uh, when you're driving on the highway, and you probably see this many times, you'd be driving on the highway, you just see plastic bottle, plastic bottle, plastic bottle. You see them everywhere. And there's just bottle of booze littering the highway. And those are people just throwing the bottle out the window before they get home and hiding the evidence. So um, that that was um, my particular uh, journey. Um, but in moving on from, from bottoms and, and, um, moving now on to, to recovery, um, in your recovery coaching, um, what kind of, uh, techniques and modalities do you, do you teach people, um, to, to get their mind, um, detached from the, from the constant focus, the, 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 the glare that we have, um, when it comes to alcohol and, and, and to try to, uh, open their eyes to see, you know, the full, um, the full yeah. beauty of life and to take advantage of it. Well, I, you know, I think, um, I think it helps to understand who I work with. So I typically work with high achieving women who, um, you know, are like me, most working moms, uh, most drinking, whatever their drink of choice equivalent is a bottle plus of wine a night. Um, typically have not had, you know, external issues. They still have their marriage, their job, their kids, no legal issues. And yet they know it's a problem. Um, typically have not talked with anyone in their lives about it. This is something that everybody knows they drink and they desperately don't want anyone to know they have a problem with it. Their spouse, their friends are drinkers and they um, have tried to moderate, right? They've tried okay. every single way to limit their alcohol. I mean, I did, um, I'm not, I'm going to sign up for a 10 K to run at night. So I won't drink at night. I'm going to do 5:30 AM boot camp, So I won't drink as much the night before I'm going to switch to white wine or beer because I like red wine better. I mean, nothing worked, um, right. at least not for very long. And so I, on my podcast, I talk about this a lot. And so I think you attract the people who resonate with your story. So, um, like I said, I'm not a member of a 12 step program. I am a certified life and sobriety coach. I take a habit and behavior change approach to stopping drinking with top of mind constantly that alcohol is addictive. If you need to consume more, if you um, think that you are not as happy when you're not drinking, that you're more irritated and less patient and um, not as relaxed, that is the substance working as designed. You're actually in withdrawal. And so the way I approach women is first get them away from the alcohol, meaning you cannot see clearly the way it is influencing every single aspect of your life, your relationships, your job, your nervous system, your sort of overall level of contentment and happiness until mm -hmm. you get some distance from it. So even though, you know, like me, I could barely get four days without drinking when women sign up with me, I say, okay, our joint goal is to get you to 100 continuous days alcohol free. And that's for a whole bunch of reasons, um, mm. including the typical ups and downs. I've seen women go through within those first 100 days, right? It, it's not all pink clouds. At various times, it's, it's pretty difficult. They're going to have to, in that time, go through a birthday, an anniversary, a vacation, um, for the first time, they're going to have to figure out how to function without alcohol in work stress, in parenting, in marriage issues, um, how to go on dates without alcohol, how to have sex without alcohol. I mean, all the things, business trips, and but they're going to have me to hold their hand through every step of the way. So it's a very practical approach um, with accountability, but obviously not every single one of my clients does it perfectly. Um, so if they do drink, uh, it's a learning opportunity that they didn't have enough support. Um, but I am very clearly not a moderation coach. Um, you know, so I walk them through, all right, first week, you are going to be irritated, craving, tired, 
you need to tell people in your life you're not drinking. You don't have to tell them more than that. You need to try to get all the alcohol out of your house or at the very least your beverage of choice. You need to lower the bar and do the bare minimum. You need to, you know, reach out to me. I'm in your back pocket. I want to hear from you if you, you know, all the things. And then we build up from that, right? Then we're like, all right, you're going out to dinner. Text me before, text me during, I don't care. What are you going to order? Look at the menu. Don't go in hungry. Um, it's very practical. And obviously, I'm a sobriety coach. My goal is not to get them to 100 days and be like, all right, drink again. Um, my goal is to do the work between day one and day 100 so that when they get to 100 days, they can't believe how little they were settling for on day one. They feel better. And they're excited about what's next. So they move the goalposts. For me, I found with women and with myself, the idea of never drinking again is a bridge too far in the beginning. You won't get past the first week, meaning um, you will look at someone having a glass of wine in a restaurant and just feel such sadness and such right. longing and think that I will never have that again. And say, okay, I'm going to drink one more time. And then that just repeats. So I want them to think of it like a health kick to lower the drama and fear and meaning behind it to be like, okay, you know, you're doing a hundred days. It's like running a marathon. You know, it's something to be proud of. It's an experiment. Um, you're going to look better. You're going to feel better pretend you're a vegetarian. This is a health and wellness choice. It does not need to define your life and you don't need to accept a label for it. But I'm also, I mean, I'm trying to do early intervention, right? Before they need to go through physical withdrawal, before they go through yeah. um, rehab. And I think that what I love is the sober curious movement where people are openly talking about alcohol and the fact it's not all it's cracked up to be. Um, have you ever, uh, have you ever looked into, um, any of the reports from the Scribs Institute, uh, about the, the genetic component of alcoholism and, um, because it, 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 the, the, um, the, the, the soberish movement and the, and sort of, sort of interdicting the alcoholism early, um, whenever I think about that, and it's just for, these are me statements, um, because I, when when I hear that, it it makes it. Uh, and when I hear your story and what you can do for people, it it um, I, does it make me feel guilty? I guess it kind of does, because I I want because I wonder if I had spoke if I had spoken to somebody like you whether or not I could have saved a lot of people a lot of pain. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? And so uh, because I. Uh, I knew that I was an alcoholic when I was 26 years old and I knew that I drank to a level that um, I, I drank an, a, an amount that was alarming at, at 25, 26 years old. And I also knew that at seven o'clock every morning. So I know that you, you had said that, you know, you, you had a lot of first days until you had that last first day. I probably had a thousand, I had thousands of them. Yeah. And it was every morning at seven o'clock in the morning and I would wake up with a hangover. And that was just normal for me. And, and, you know, I would go out drinking with a, with a guy, you know, we'd go out and play golf and we'd have, you know, your typical 12 units of alcohol, pretty much. Uh, and he would be hung over in the next day. Oh my God, my freaking head. And I would, I'd be up at seven making coffee and ready to go out and, and go skiing or, you know, ready to go out and go water skiing. And, and I remember my friends would look at me and they'd say, man, you're just tougher than we are. And, and I, and I had like a sense of pride about it. Um, and for, for me, when I would pick up that first drink, if I just picked up that first one, that was it. I, it was, there was no stopping me. Um, most people, when they, uh, have a drink, as you probably know, um, they'll have just one drink and they'll feel sedated. They'll feel serene. They'll feel, um, calm. They will, it's sort of the lack of anxiety. So it's not really happiness. It's just not pressure. And it, and it isn't, 
it, it isn't really like a dopamine party. It's just sort of the lack of all the cortisol that's filling around you in your head all day long. Um, and uh, so I, I would go from, you know, from one drink to I, I could have about four would be the minimum that I would have three or four. And then the most I would have would be about eight, something like that. And I, again, I never did any stimulants. So by about 11 o'clock, I would pass out, which is exactly what I was trying to do is fall asleep. Uh, so I, I wasn't one of those normal people that, that were those typical people that go out to the bar and they stay out for three days and they go on these runs yeah. and all these, these amazing stories that you hear in, in rehab and whatnot. Um, but I, and that's how, when people ask me, they say, where did you become an alcoholic? And I said, I became an alcoholic at home. And, yeah. and, well, you know, and, it, and it is odd that my story is exactly like yours. I mean, literally every single thing you described from the emotions to the drinking to the, I mean, I drank a bottle of wine a night, right. Which is five glasses essentially, or one or two more. I used to wake up in the morning and hold up the second bottle, you know, with one eye open um, while getting my coffee to sort of judge how bad my day was going <laughs> right? If there was like three-fourths left, I was like, all right, it's going to be okay. If there was one-fourth left, I was like, damn, this is going to be a bad one, you know? you got to throw the bottle. you got to finish the bottle and throw it away, Casey. What's the matter with you? Well, you got to finish the first bottle. But if you open the second one, that's where you're like, boy. And, you know, I'd be opening bottle number two, not all the time, but, you know, not – it wasn't a one-time-a-month occurrence. And my husband would look at me, and this is a Tuesday night, and just be like, what are you doing? What's and I'd just be like, you know what? I just, it's been a hard day. I just yeah. need one more. Yeah. And I'd be like, God, why is he so judgy? So in terms of hiding stuff, I, you know, how you can just, your thinking gets crazy where you, you are thinking of creative solutions. I would sometimes have, two bottles of wine going, one that had a screw top in the wine rack, one that had a cork that I would drink when my husband would go do something else. I would open, you know, I'd been on the couch all night. I would lickety split, hop off the couch, run to fill up my glass, you know, with the other bottle, yeah. jump back on. I hadn't moved in hours, you know, and so the behavior, and I think the amount is the same. Um, I just my husband never, almost never said anything to me. You know what I mean? And we've been together since we were 22 or 23. Um, it was just part of our relationship. He very much felt like he was not my parent. Um, and he said, you know, I interviewed him on my podcast. I was terrified to talk to him because we never really went. I didn't want to know what he remembered um, or thought of me at the time, um, turns out he was much more kind to me than I was to myself. Um, I was sort of the smiley drunk who just kind of passed out on the couch and was very loving 95% of the time. Um, and still overcompensated to keep absolute, you know, I would set the coffee and do the dishes and set yeah. six alarms before I ever had glass number four, you know, yeah. but um, he never told me to stop drinking. Um, in fact, the, the week I stopped, he said to me, Hey, why don't you just want, you know, join the wine club of your favorite winery. So you don't go out a couple of times a week for a couple of bottles of wine. And in my mind, I'm like, listen to what you are saying. Yeah. You know, I, I was just like, how can you not think this is a problem. But at the same time, I never shared with him how worried I was about my drinking, how terrible I felt in the morning, how important it was to me, because I desperately didn't want him to know. So it was just how could he understand, you know? Oh, yeah, I I, I know. I, I know. Um, I, I, I know the uh, the sort of disconnect that that um, alcoholics and non-alcoholics have and that people who again who can drink normally and then they have one or two drinks and then they just say you know what if i have another one i'm going to feel sick <laughs> um like you know those are normal. those are normal people 
And then, um, and, and, you know, alcohol is a depressant and to normal people, it's a depressant. And then there are some people who have that C alien on the GABA2 gene and what they've, what the MAC study, the Oxford Institute study had, had concluded years ago was, um, that what it looked like is that the people who have this C alien who are sort of these genetic alcoholics, I guess you could have what it is. The reason why they drink in excess isn't that um, they have a particular uh, 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 a, a, a more um, a dynamic uh, response to alcohol. It's the opposite. The reason that they drink so much is that the euphoric feelings of alcohol don't come for people with that C alien as they as quickly as they do with people who have what's called an L alien. Um, on that GABA2 gene. So essentially, the alcoholics have to drink three times as much to get that same feeling of calmness and serenity as a, as a sort of typical, typical person, which would probably explain the binginess. But what it really was for me, and, I, and um, uh, I, I, it was an old timer in an AA meeting one time, and he said, you know, most people when they have a drink, they get that I want to sit down feeling. He goes, when I would have a drink, I got that get up and go kind of feeling like I wanted to dance on top of a table with every woman in the bar. And I go, oh man, does that explain exactly the way I felt when I drank? And um, and and that and and that explains the over or the abuse of the alcoholism until it gets to a certain point. Um, do you think that you ever? Uh, got to, well, I guess you probably answered that already. Um, uh, what would you suggest for people who, um, th that are more physically addicted? Do you think that they could benefit from your program or that, the, or that they would need an inpatient program? I, I do believe they need an inpatient program or a medical detox or, or an outpatient program. I mean, the way I coach women is, you know, do it via Zoom. I work with women in Canada, in the US. I've had clients in Mexico and Italy. Um, but it is a, you know, I am not there with them. I cannot remove the alcohol from their house. I am not there to stop them from drinking, right? So there, and also, as you know, medical detox, physical, physically withdrawing can be incredibly dangerous. I mean, it can be deadly, you know, deadly. Yeah. It's deadly. Yeah. So I definitely have had a couple of clients uh, who I've said to them, I think you need more support than a coach can provide. Um, I, I know it's a spectrum right there. Um, you know, they don't necessarily medically use the term alcoholism anymore. It's alcohol use disorder mild, yeah. moderate, and severe. Um, I probably deal with women on the, on the moderate to heavy, moderate side. Um, I think there is, is a point where you, you absolutely need situational change. You need the alcohol out of the possibility of being around you. The one thing I would say from what you were, what you were mentioning before is what i believe in sort of the the doctors I've talked to is there is absolutely a hereditary uh, family dynamic. There also can easily not be that. Mm -hmm. um, no one in my family ever abused alcohol. My parents, um, you know, had a glass a night. My sister has no issues. Um, I, I believe there, there are underlying factors that make alcohol work really well for some people, whether it's social anxiety, whether it's ADHD, um, ADHD yeah. people with that have a five times more likely, uh, are five times more likely to, yeah, to suffer <laughs> with addiction due to the lack of dopamine, right. In uh. their system. And, um, you know, whether it, any kind of underlying depression, anxiety, other factors can um, make alcohol really attractive, um, as well as, as environment, right? Uh, if you, 
you know, I truly believe that if you drink enough, often enough, you will become addicted the same way you will to smoking. That's how it's designed to work. And, you know, playing rugby, that was, you know, in no way do I blame that, but that was a crash course in drinking to blackout, that being celebrated, surrounded by huge drinkers. And once I was a big drinker, I didn't want to hang out with anyone who wasn't. Um, and it just escalates from there, right? You start with a drink a night and suddenly it's three and suddenly it's a bottle and suddenly you're rationalizing it. And suddenly when you're not drinking, you're less happy and you want more. And my husband used to be like, you just don't have an off switch. You drink until the alcohol is gone or you pass out. And I was like, yep, true story. That certainly sounds like you. We could have hung out together back in the back oh, in the days yeah. on the rugby pitch. <laughs> I actually love ex drinkers. They're my favorite because yeah. they have great stories. <laughs> they, we we do. I I often tell people I'm like, if you didn't have fun getting here, um, then then you got gypped because it it, it you know it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it was until it wasn't. Yes. Uh, I, I do like to say that. And, and, and when it isn't fun anymore, generally is when you have children pretty much that that's like, cause even uh, in the first three years of my first marriage, we didn't have any children yet. And it was just honeymoon the whole time. It, it the whole time was one big honeymoon. And, uh, it, there wasn't any sort of responsibility until there was, I'm sorry, I have a puppy jumping on me. Oh, it's right, so you gotta get down. Oh, he's my little, he's our little one-year-old golden retriever. And then we have an 11-year-old. They won't leave me be. Um, but I, uh, it, I I did relate to that part of um, what you were saying um, with, with uh, the, you know, when the alcoholism sets in, because it, it, and I like to tell this to people, you know, you could be, because people get, they get hooked up with, with the genetics of it. And they say, mm-hmm. well, you know, am I a genetic alcoholic? And then I well, I don't know, just look anecdotally. I mean, for, for me, uh, two grandfathers, um, alcoholics, uh, a grandmother who was an alcoholic, a mother who was an alcoholic, a father who abused alcohol, uh, an aunt who abused alcohol. I mean, it's just we're replete with everybody. It's just ubiquitous in our in our in our family. And I like to tell people, I'm like, it doesn't matter. It, it's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell's book. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you could relate to yeah, this. Yeah, the where, tipping point, right? Well, it's it's the the it's more like yeah, the tipping point, or it's that same that ten thousand hour rule that he had, where he says to become a professional in anything, you have to oh, put ten thousand yeah. hours into it. It's kind of like alcohol. Now, I don't know if it's ten thousand drinks. It's probably more than that. But at some point, your hypothalamus stops functioning properly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does and, alter your brain and your Absolutely. mammalian brain just stops operating in a normal fashion. And, and it's at that point that I tell people that, you know, you, as a medical definition, that's where they would say that you're an alcoholic is that mm-hmm. when you're having withdrawal substance and you don't, you know, and all of a sudden one night you decide that you're not going to drink. And then what would happen to me is I would go into uh, number one insomnia. Number two, my blood pressure would get to about 220 over 110. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would start getting the sweats. Yeah. And, and that's when I started getting scared uh, because I did a little reading up on it. And they told me how close at that point you are to having a grand mal seizure. And at that point is when I, I, I really got scared. But as I sit here today, that did not stop me from drinking. Yeah. Uh, the, you're, the, the, you're really far down. I, I wasn't afraid to die. A matter of fact, that's probably subconsciously what I was trying to do anyways, mm-hmm. as I was drinking myself at the very end uh, to the point where I would be um, drunk, sleep, wake up, hung over, get drunk, sleep. All I wanted to do was sleep. And when people would come over and they'd say, hey, Ry, you know, you got to get up. You got to get out of this funk. And I just say, man, all I want to do is sleep. All I want to do is sleep. And what I was saying, and and I, um, and if anybody's you know watching, uh, these these signs out of an alcoholic are, are very bad. It's it's it, that an alcoholic in that state is is in a dangerous position because of what I was really saying is I, I want to sleep forever. I don't I don't want to wake up anymore. I, I don't want to live with the pain I've caused to myself and to others. And and I and I couldn't get a an honest perspective, even on myself. Um, because just like you, I, I felt so bad about what I was doing 
and you know at, at you know that you had your your husband on your podcast you know you probably thought he's really going to just really beat on me because again you didn't have a true perspective when we were drinking of, of what we were really like and you and a lot of people exaggerate and they say well it's a lot worse than it really was or it's not as bad as it really was but no matter if we're exaggerating or we're minimizing we're not telling the truth of what happened because we were drunk and we don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but as you, um, as, so as you sit here today and seven years sober, uh, what can you, uh, tell people who, who are, might be watching and they might have a loved one that they would like to show this to, uh, what can you share with them um, are the wonderful things that have happened in your life that you don't think would would have been possible if you were still drinking? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest change is just my level of calm and my level of happiness and the lack of waking up hating myself. Um, the lack of quitting on myself is amazing. You know, my life actually didn't change when I stopped drinking for three years. Um, after three years, I went back to coaching school. I decided to become a life and sobriety coach. I finally left my corporate job four years later, but I was a director at a Fortune 500 company, same husband, same kids, same friends. I didn't change mm -hmm. my friends. I added a lot of friends who didn't drink as well. I was additive to it, but once I stopped drinking, once I got out of the early bits and did a bunch of night work, um, I was just amazed how much easier my life was, how much more confident my life was. My job was easier. My marriage was better. Parenting was easier. And, um, you know, things that I always said I was going to do and never did, um, I suddenly was able to follow through on. And, um I look back and can't believe how little I settled for when I was drinking, where having opening the bottle of wine at 6 p.m. was my highlight of my day. And I would walk into work thinking I hate my life. Um, I was two months sober and I remember vividly walking into work at 8 a.m. seeing, you know, it was it was foggy, it was misty, the birds were flying up. And I was just like, oh, my God, I love my life. That level of sort of technicolor, tender, transformative moment you get. And I couldn't believe it, that level of like joy and wonder. Um, but I feel like you have to get away from alcohol to feel that and to see that clearly. Um, I truly believe that we have been completely and totally brainwashed to believe that alcohol helps us relax, helps our anxiety, is a privilege of adulthood, is required. And I think that's changing. I mean, 70% of Americans don't realize that alcohol causes cancer. Um, almost all women, I don't know, you know, for until 2020, the American Cancer Society, the recommended amount to drink was one drink a day for women, two for men. It was actually recommended, which is insane. Um, they have now said no level of alcohol is healthy. Yeah. Zero. 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 <laughs> and it causes seven kinds of cancer, but not only that, three drinks a week, three a week for women raises your risk of breast cancer by 15% and every drink over that another 10%. And so within what the American Cancer Society was recommending would have raised your risk of breast cancer by 50%. Um, yeah, and, and when, when whenever I see those new studies that refute the old studies, what I always want to know is, why aren't we calling out the authors of the old studies and asking yeah. them um, what influence, what what influenced this and who funded this? That's yeah. what I would like to know. Yeah, um, there's, and, there's, there's you know, a lot of that nonsense going on with with um, with pharmaceutical companies and yeah. fudge numbers and whatnot about all kinds of things. And um, whenever people say, well. Um, you know, you don't need to see the data because uh, it, it's too complicated for you. I immediately go, I'm being lied to. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I always wondered about those because uh, there was uh, that two glass of wine a night is good for your heart nonsense. Crap. Uh, it is really what um, got my family on um, the wine culture. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, beer and a scotch kind of family. Um, that's what my dad was and my mom. My mom would drink a little bit of scotch because she didn't like beer. But my dad was a Pabst Blue Ribbon guy when I was young. And my parents, again, we didn't have a lot of money till I was a teenager. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that my parents started drinking on a daily basis. And so yeah. they didn't hit they didn't hit that sort of 10,000 drinks limit or whatever it is until much later in life. So um, do you have a lot of experience with late onset addiction, um, especially in, um, in, in women? Um, no, no. And I'm very clear about the women I coach. Like if someone, I, I talk to them about what they drink, how much they drink, what their history is, what their life is. And if I'm not the right fit for them, or I don't feel like I have the expertise to help them, I refer them to other people. I also don't work with women who have a history of eating disorders. That's not something I've dealt with or I'm an expert in. I don't work with women who are in emotionally abusive relationships or toxic relationships. I really feel like you need to find a coach or a doctor or a therapist who is equipped to help you. Yeah, to, especially with those coexisting conditions, because um, they, they're they're very dangerous and and um, they need to be dealt with uh, a lot with my interventions. Uh, if you have somebody w- with a, a coexisting men- mental health issue, uh, I usually tell people I'm not I'm not the guy for you to do this, and you need a medical professional. And this is not a a, a medical. This is you know I'm I'm not a medical professional, and I certainly am not um, holding myself out to be one. Um, it has been uh, wonderful speaking with you. I uh, don't mean to cut us short. I do have to get to Penn State because um, the it is Parents Weekend, and I have been, this is this is you're gonna love this one. Uh, I have been invited to a sorority party tonight. <laughs> I've never been to a sorority party in my entire life. Um, the the Jesuits we don't allow. Uh, we don't allow sororities or fraternities in Jesuit universities because they're pagans. Um, and, and we don't believe in that stuff. So uh, we never had that at BC, which is why um, at BC, the best parties were the rugby parties because yeah. we were the only like kind of fraternity that there really was. Uh, but it was a sorority too, because as you know, there's a lot of girls. Um, that play rugby and, um, and, and go to the drinking parties and drink out of dirty boots. Yeah. <laughs> but it has been wonderful speaking with you. And I really would like to, um, uh, to uh, connect with you again in the near future. And um, thank you for being on the program. And, uh, and I wish you the best of luck. You as well. It's so nice to meet you and speak to you. And thank you. And when I see our friend, our mutual friends in, uh, on Facebook, I, I will uh, give a shout out from you for all your choke people. <laughs> Take care, Casey. Okay.